Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to talk with Frank Vogel, a former official at the World Bank and an author whose new book, The Enablers, makes some damning accusations about the United States and other Western countries. Vogel says the tolerance for corruption and financial imbalances are fueling the threats to democracy that we see all over the globe. We're going to ask him what he means and how he thinks we might right the wrongs that he's concerned about. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about issues of income inequality, threats to our democracy, our problematic foreign policy decisions, and the ways our financial systems work against the interests of most Americans. Now, all of those issues might seem very separate. But my next guest says that they're all connected by one issue that we don't tend to talk enough about, and that's global corruption. Frank Vogel has spent much of his career trying to raise awareness about and fight against corruption on a global scale. And he has a new book out titled The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, endangering our democracy. Its release comes on the eve of President Biden's White House Summit for Democracy on December 9th, which Vogel says is an opportunity to talk about the powerful lever the West can lean on to weaken authoritarian governments and stop the global backslide of democracy. Frank Vogel joins me now talk about his book, his ideas, and what solutions to this problem might look like. Frank Vogel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Mm. So you've spent many years of your career just trying to get people to care more about global corruption. Um, I want to start with you defining what you mean when you say global corruption and the fact that uh, you believe the United States is supporting that kind of global corruption. What, what precisely are you talking about? Corruption uh, at the public sector level, at the government level, is the theft of public funds by top government officials, politicians, for their personal benefit. If you look around the world today, there are at least 120 countries where the governments are perceived by uh, their own citizens and by external businessmen and so on as being corrupt or very highly corrupt. These are governments, top officials, uh, who steal from their people. They steal enormous amounts of money from their citizens. They use that money to buy the support of key officials and in many cases, military uh, personnel as well to strengthen their position in power. And at the same time, to increase their own personal wealth. And the West is complicit in two ways. One, we do an great amount of commercial business with many of these kleptocratic regimes that strengthens them. Uh, and in some cases, in the arms trade, for example, many of those deals are quite secret and may involve uh, bribes and kickbacks. But my book primarily focuses on the way in which Western governments support our financial sector which in turn is helping the kleptocrats to launder their money. We have bankers, lawyers, auditors, financial consultants, real estate brokers, all aiding and abetting 
corrupt regimes to safely and secretly put their cash into this country. Mm. And our governments are not doing enough to stop that. So I, I would love for you to also give us some specific examples of what you're talking about, people or nations that are part of this chain of corruption around the globe. Well, just last year, just to give you one simple example, last year, Goldman Sachs, a major New York international bank, pay, concluded a series of settlements with the U.S. Justice Department and Justice Departments in several different countries to resolve the fact that it had not only paid $1.6 billion in bribes to get the opportunity to manage very large bond deals, which in time would produce huge fees for the bank. But then it also helped to use the proceeds of these bond deals to actually help people to steal the money. Now, let me be quite precise. Hmm. Goldman Sachs raised over $6 billion for the government of Malaysia in order to support economic development to help the poorest people in Malaysia. In fact, officials at Goldman Sachs, working together with the former prime minister and his associates in Malaysia, stole $4.5 billion. The people of Malaysia were robbed. Uh, and what happened? Goldman Sachs was fine. Um, but the share price of Goldman Sachs since that settlement in the last year is up by 80%. Hmm. The bonuses given to the top executives of Goldman Sachs are at a record level. The chairman and the senior executives at Goldman were not punished in any shape or form. And you have to, con uh, and although two executives have been indicted, the middle level executives, you have to conclude that if you're a bank and you look at all this, you might say, well, the fines are just the cost of doing business. Hmm. Hmm. So, I, I, as I mentioned in the open to this conversation, your book is coming out right before President Biden's summit for democracy. And I think that's interesting timing, whether it was intentional or not. But I think you believe that this is an opportunity to try to talk about some of these things and how we might go in a different direction. Uh, what is the opportunity presented by this summit? There are, there's a tremendous opportunity. President Biden is inviting the heads of over 100 governments to participate in this session. Uh, the overarching theme is countering authoritarianism. And the two key agenda items which are linked are anti-corruption and human rights. And it is so important, I think, that people understand that when government leaders steal on a massive scale from their people, as we see in Russia, frankly, we see it in China as well. We see it in Iran. We see it in Egypt. We see it in Belarus. When they steal so much from their people, they create massive humanitarian problems in their countries, huge poverty, uh, disease, opportunities for human trafficking and for all sorts of other uh, organized crime. What President Biden wants to do is to focus the world, the leaders of democratic countries on the need to join together to change this trend mm. in the name of human rights, humanitarian relief, but also because he understands and an increasing number of leaders understand that the enormous amount of wealth that these powerful authoritarian regimes are accumulating and their leaders are personally accumulating strengthens their power. And they are using it, amongst other things, to interfere in our elections. In the recent German election, they are using it to pressure many, many governments to be basically beholden to them. If we want to turn the tide on that, we have to address corruption as well as human rights. Mm -hmm. 
I'm talking with Frank Vogel, a co-founder of the anti-corruption non-government organizations Transparency International and the Partnership for Transparency Fund. He's an author of a new book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption endangering our democracy. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Colin, tell us what kinds of corruptions you worry about. Do you think about the ways that it might affect you or your community? Uh, what are some of the things that you'd like to see happen to crack down on corruption, either in your own backyard or on a global scale? Uh, also, do you have faith that government or corporate leaders are willing to tackle these issues. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, and we can uh, include you in the conversation that way. Frank, uh, before we turn to our listeners I also want to ask you about the consequences of what you're you're seeing to ordinary Americans, uh, people here in the city of Detroit. How might they look around their world and see that things are not working the way they should, see that things are having an adverse effect on their lives because of this dynamic that you're you're describing? One very concrete example. In many cities across the United States, and in, in fact, across Western Europe and Canada as well, <clears throat> there are very large numbers of commercial buildings, uh, homes, condominiums that are bought by people through many complicated shell companies that the lawyers, the enablers uh, set up that hide the identity of the true owner. In many cases, these purchases of real estate are pushing up total prices, squeezing out local citizens in many respects from the market, which obviously should be their market, should be where they could be able to affordably buy homes. Uh, we see this on a massive scale in some cities. And the fact of the matter is, if we could only strip away the shell companies and the schemes that lawyers create to hide the identity of the owners. And if people knew who was owning that real estate, uh, that would do a great deal to bring all of this into focus. And I think, by the way, that many of the current foreign purchasers with dirty money of these homes and the condos and commercial buildings would Stop doing that. They try to find other ways to park their money, but it would have a very beneficial effect on home prices. Mm -hmm. uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with Anthony in southwest Detroit. Anthony, what's on your mind? Hi, good morning, Stephen. Yeah, well, I'm just having trouble accepting this whole premise because, I mean, to say the United States has a better sense of human rights than any of these countries that guest is mentioning, we have the biggest prison population in the world. Mm -hmm. If you can't afford to go see the doctor, you're going bankrupt here, whereas the countries he's mentioning, they don't have that, and they've nationalized some of their industries, you know, national resources. So our government's in bed with big business, and we can only choose between red and blue. So I reject this whole premise of which nation is corrupt. Mm. Uh, Anthony, uh, that's a really interesting perspective, and I'm glad you called and, and, and shared it with us. Uh, Frank Vogel, answer that criticism. What makes this country I, I have, the paragon? I have, a lot, I have a lot of sympathy with Anthony's point. The final chapter of my book, which deals with political reform, mm -hmm stresses we will not get on top of these international corruption issues unless we reduce money in politics here at home in the United States. The reason why these enablers, these bankers and lawyers and others, uh, are able to get away with so much of what is actually criminal activity is because they wield enormous and disproportionate influence in our own political system. Mm -hmm. And I argue very strongly that not only do we need to do something about it, but 
opinion polls here in the U.S. show that trust in government is at an all-time low, uh, and you just heard Anthony just, I think, exemplifying that. Uh, and when you ask people why is trust so low, one of the reasons is perceptions of corruption in government. We have to clean this up. We have to reduce the influence of the most powerful financial institutions in this country in our politics if we want to explicitly address some of the global problems that I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I also want to follow up on something that Anthony said, that we really only get to choose between red and blue here, and that in his mind, there is not much difference because of the outsized corporate influence over our politics. But I wonder if you can talk about how the Trump years affected corruption and our role in enabling it, whether that was itself something of an outlier because of the, the person and the personality at the center of that administration, and then talk about how things are or are not different because Joe Biden is now the president, not just someone of a different party, but someone with a really different outlook on, on these kinds of things. There was uh, quite a lot of momentum uh, a few years ago, led in part by the United States to try to end some of the act uh, the ways in which the enablers hide their their actions. Uh, I think we were quite optimistic. And then the Trump administration took office and put all of those initiatives totally on hold. And we saw really backsliding over four years. Um, the Biden administration so far has talked a lot, and we have to still see the action. We have to actually see the concrete measures. And one of the things that is so disappointing in our highly divided national politics is the unwillingness uh, of sufficient numbers of people on both sides of the aisle to talk about money in politics, to talk about restoring public trust in the institutions of government. If we can't do that, we can't get a real grip on the corruption issues. I hope President Biden can patiently, diligently make a change there. Mm. But uh, this is a very tense time, as you know far better than I and your listeners do. And it's, it's an enormous challenge, but it's vital because we have to understand that Russia and China and other kleptocratic regimes are determined to undermine our democracy and basically threaten our security. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Frank Vogel about his new book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. You want to give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Tell us how you think corruption plays a role in the things that you see in your community or your nation or on a global scale. What would you like to see happen differently? Uh, also, go to Facebook or to Twitter, put comments there, and we can work into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Frank Vogel. He's a co-founder of two anti-corruption and non-government organizations. One is called Transparency International, and the other is the Partnership for Transparency Fund. He's also author of a new book called The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, endangering our democracy. We're talking about uh, the ways in which corruption has an effect on our democracy and an effect on all of the things that we talk about quite a bit here on this show, uh, economic insecurity, economic 
in equality, uh, all of the things that uh, seem to be eating away at the uh, America that I think all of us would like to think that we're part of. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you about what you, th- what you think about uh, corruption. Uh, what kinds of corruption do you worry about? Uh, do you think about the ways that it might affect you or your community? Also, do you have faith that government or corporate leaders are willing to tackle some of these issues and do them uh, a little differently? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we will include you in the conversation that way. Before we go back to listeners, Frank, I want to talk about the recent U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and how much it exposed the corruption that had taken hold in that country. What are the most important lessons you think we should learn from our experience in Afghanistan in terms of global corruption? It's a tragic, tragic story. Uh, There was excellent reporting uh, by the former inspector general for Iraq uh, on how there was corruption during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And he outlined the dangers, all the lessons learned. And all of that was ignored by the US government when it went to Afghanistan. We, according to the US Inspector General for Afghanistan, the US spent $145 billion on reconstruction and development in the country. And that Inspector General concluded that the way in which so much of those funds was administered added to corruption in the country. It added to a loss of trust by the citizens of Afghanistan in their own governments and in the US. And there was mounting evidence, so much evidence of corruption in Afghanistan. And time and time again, the US political and military and diplomatic leadership turned a blind eye to the whole situation. It's, It's a terrible tragedy. I hope we learn from it. And what is the lesson? The lesson is that if you are going to try and help a country to develop, to become an open country where people can trust their governments, you have to have a system of justice that is fair for everybody. It has to be enforced and it has to have true buy-in from everybody. And frankly, no attempt was made or serious attempt was made in 20 years in Afghanistan to do just that. Some people would say, though, that the decision to get involved in Afghanistan was itself flawed, that the idea of supporting, for instance, the Karzai government um, in the first place was uh, was corrupt and was courting of corruption in exchange for some notion of global safety and that this is a defining element of U.S. foreign policy, that we do this over and over and over again, so much so that it is part of the character, I guess, of uh, this nation and its foreign policy. Do, Do you believe that so? I think there are numerous examples you can cite, and I think Iraq is another one, where what you've just said is absolutely right. Mm -hmm. But I would point out, over 60 years, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the World Bank, which the U.S. uh, has strongly supported, uh, many other aid agencies, or foundations like the Gates Foundation and others that the U.S. government works with, have done an enormous amount of good in the world. the levels of poverty today are significantly lower than they were 30 years ago. The levels of disease are down. People in many countries are leading better lives. And I think US foreign policy and the way in which I've just described it has contributed to those benefits. So I think we have to be even-handed. It's very easy to find the major faults. uh, And I totally subscribe to, to a lot of the criticism but I think we have to be even-handed in this respect. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Max in Allen Park. 
Max, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, Max. Hey. Hey, how you doing, uh, everybody? Good. Good morning, everyone. Uh, but, I, you know, I have to, I have to, you know, concur with my uh, friend in Southwest Detroit. I think this is all kind of disingenuous. This is the price of empire. Yes, are, you know, people's lives have been improved through NGOs and even perhaps through our own government's action around the world. But I saw footage last night of, of uh, hunger brides being sold in Afghanistan. How many Phantom Armies are we going to pay for? Is this the last time? Can anyone be sure of that? Hmm. I don't think so. Hmm. Max, uh, again, really appreciate the call uh, and the perspective. I think there's a theme here with our with our callers, and uh, we have some social media comments that reflect the same thing, Frank, which is, I guess, doubt that there is a an innocent space, I guess, that the United States exists in in this in this equation that that uh, that so much of what we do and what benefits us as Americans is kind of reliant on this kind of relationship, this kind of foreign policy, this kind of tolerance, I guess, of the corruption that you're that you're talking about. I think I I have a lot of sympathy with that view of Max. And I if you look at the scale of human trafficking around the world, and you look at the scale of humanitarian abuse in many, many countries. In most cases, these are countries run by kleptocrats. They are authoritarian countries. The leaders of those countries operate very closely with organized crime. And you have to ask the question, what can we do about it? And uh, sending in the military is not an option in my view. You have to think hard what precisely makes this whole system work. And money is the grease of the system. And if we can hit these kleptocrats in their wallets, if we can curb a lot of the money laundering by organized crime, we start to make a very important contribution to turning the tide. That's what my book is all about. That's what I'm all about in this respect. I believe we can curtail the operations of these enablers, these middlemen, who help the kleptocrats to launder their cash. Mm. And if we curb their operations, we hit the kleptocrats where it hurts them really, really hard, i.e. in their wallets. Mm. And we can do this. Uh, it's a question of us having the will to do it and being willing to say too many people in business and finance in this country have too much political influence. The regulations are working for them and not for the public interest as a whole. And we can change that. We have the power to change that if we have the will. Yeah. And before we go back to our callers, and I, and I do want to get to more of them in a second, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't note that these were issues that were really important to Michigan Senator Carl Levin, who passed away earlier this year, a good friend of the state of Michigan, of course, and and also somebody uh, who who appeared pretty frequently here on our show. Uh, you've talked in the past about the charges that he led to try to find solutions to issues of global corruption and the U.S. role in it. Can you reflect a little bit on his work in in this area? Carl Levin was a remarkable man. He he also wrote uh, a wonderful book mm -hmm. uh, called Getting to the Heart of the Matter, yes. My 36 Years in the Senate, which came out very shortly before his death. Mm -hmm. it, amongst his many responsibilities, he, he looked very hard time and time again from his earliest days in, in Congress at whether or not government is sufficiently transparent and accountable. Do these government programs that we see all around us, do they have contracts that the public can inspect to see that they are honest and not the result just of kickbacks? And he took those, that fundamental belief to the international landscape. It was under his supervision that major investigations went forward about uh, 10 or 11 years ago into the international corruption perpetrated by some of the very biggest banks. Uh, the most notable of all those cases was HSBC, 
the largest bank in Europe that was, amongst other things, thanks to Carl Levin's committee and his staff, laundering billions of dollars of, drug, of Mexican drug cartel money into the United States. So Levin was a, a very important champion in the anti-corruption cause. He saw the domestic damage that it did here at home, and he understood the very key message we have to have transparency in all public contracting. We have to have accountability on the part of all of those who are responsible for public finance and for ensuring that our laws are truly enforced. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Abe in Detroit. Abe, what's on your mind? Yeah, how are you doing today? Hey, good. How are you? Okay, I got two things. Mm-hmm. One thing is that the United States itself does not recognize human rights. Black people in America still have civil rights, mm-hmm. which are not human rights. Mm-hmm. So let's not talk about going around the world giving people human rights when you haven't done it here yourself, number one. Number two, this country is built on slavery, killing, murder, taking, robbing, rape, so all of a sudden now, no other country can do that to build their country? I don't understand what you're saying. Just because the United States did it, nobody else can do that. Only we can do that and get rich. Hmm. Only only we can be the greedy ones. Nobody else can be greed or have greed in their heart. Hmm. Number three is the, the system is never changing because greed is part of the system. So it's never going to change. Hey, Abe, I, I, I absolutely love that you called and, and shared that perspective. I think it's a really important uh, input into this uh, into this discussion, uh, Frank Vogel. Again, this this idea of what America is, where it comes from, how it has become what it is, is is problematic. I think in the in the scheme of the conversation that that we're having, uh, Abe's point about human rights, about civil rights, about the existence of African Americans uh, that 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 still, you know, sees us as second-class citizens uh, in, in so many ways, and constantly having to fight just to have our rights recognized is is an Achilles' heel to the argument about America's interests, primary interests, and then uh, when, of course, we go around the globe and try to hold ourselves up as a paragon of human rights and freedom, these things that go on in our country really belie, I think, some of that. And that perhaps, perhaps has some influence over the way in which other countries respond to us. They're not blind to that fact. They, they understand what the, the hypocrisy is and looks like. Unquestionably, we have a flawed democracy. Unquestionably, there are enormous social humanitarian problems in this country. Um, Fortunately, unlike in so many other countries around the world, we have the freedom to talk about these issues. We have the freedom to criticize our government. We have the freedom to investigate. Uh, These are vital freedoms. And they are denied million, to millions and millions of people in many countries around the world. So I totally agree with your conclusion. We have to raise our game because if we want to be a model for other countries, if we want to influence the behavior of other countries, we clearly have to address the very serious weaknesses here at home. I don't try in this book to deal with the whole landscape of corruption nor do I try to assign blame here or there. Uh, I think that's another book. What I'm trying to do is simply shine a light on the trillions of dollars that illicitly flow around the world that try to undermine confidence in government, confidence in democracy. And I believe if we can tackle that problem, then we have made progress. That is not to say there are not so many other problems that we need to tackle. And I would be the first to agree. But we cannot just turn our back on the rest of the world. Hmm. The rest of the world influences us enormously. 
Uh, we saw it with COVID. COVID came to this country from abroad. We are part of a global system. We have to act responsibly in this system. I believe we can lead in that system, but I totally agree. We need to address many of the flaws at home at the same time. Okay. Frank Vogel, author of The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. It was really great to have you here for this really lively conversation with you and with our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to go from talking about corrupt schemes on a global scale to a local scam that is pushing people out of homes that they thought they owned. NBC Digital's Aaron Einhorn joins me next to talk about the fake landlord scam right here in Detroit. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. If you're like the vast majority of Americans, you've worked pretty hard to pay for and maintain your home. According to Business Insider, housing accounts for about 37% of the average American's budget, whether you own or rent. Now imagine that after all that money and hard work, someone came to your door and told you, that the house that you thought you owned, you really don't. Or that the landlord to whom you've been paying rent all these months or years doesn't actually own the property. That is the reality that many people in Detroit are facing right now. They are the victims of a fake landlord scam that NBC News Digital and Outlier Media have been working to uncover for months. They report that as many as one in 10 tenants facing eviction in Detroit are in that situation because of this scam. Here to talk about all of this is one of the reporters who has been working hard to expose this scam. Aaron Einhorn is a national reporter with NBC News Digital. Aaron, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks. Thanks for, for having me and for drawing attention to this issue. So let's start by just explaining what is happening here. I think for people who don't spend a lot of time in Detroit neighborhoods, this is an invisible issue. But I also believe that if you spend almost any time in many Detroit neighborhoods, you see this. And it is not a small problem. It is not something that just a few people are experiencing. This is a pretty widespread issue. Uh, talk about what's going on. Yeah, I I think that folks who don't live in Detroit might be a little surprised by this in part because of how houses are purchased and rented elsewhere. So in the suburbs and other parts of the state, other parts of the country, you know, you you want to you know, you want to get a mortgage, you you know, you go to the bank, you go to the, your 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 broker, you know, you want to rent an apartment, you might go to uh, a, a rental agency or you might, you know, you know, respond to an ad in, in the paper. Uh, but a lot of those institutions aren't available to folks in Detroit for a variety of reasons. So, you know, the you know, in terms of in terms of buying a house, you know, it, it, it's it's pretty difficult to get a mortgage if the house is in is in gross disrepair. And a lot of houses in Detroit are in gross disrepair. Mm -hmm. If the property values in the neighborhood are low, the mortgage company, you know, the policies are going to say, oh, we can't lend there. So, you know, so folks might, you know, turn to, you know, a local guy in the neighborhood who says, oh, well, I can sell you this house for cash or, you know, we can do a, a rent to own situation. You pay me, you know, a certain amount of money every month. And then at the end of the process, you'll own the house. And so it ends up being based on on trust and a handshake. Um, and if that person turns out not to be, you know, a, a straight shooter, you know, turns out to be a scammer, 
you might find out that the house that you thought you were buying, you're actually not buying. Mm. And and a lot of this has to do, again, with the vulnerable position that so many Detroiters are put in by the housing market, by the extreme poverty that exists in the city, and the inability to access traditional ways of of getting housing, the kinds of securities and supports that are in place in other communities just don't exist for people here. And so they are subject to a system that just doesn't have a lot of rules. And there are people taking advantage of that and therefore taking advantage uh, of these people in this vulnerable position. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and you know, I, I was talking about, about purchasing and, and it's the same with rentals. So, you know, if the if the real estate agents and the brokers, they can't make enough commission uh, because the rents are too low in Detroit, so they're going to stay out, uh, which means that, you know, folks are kind of left to fend for themselves. And I should also note that, you know, 10 years ago, Detroit was seen as a, as a bastion of home ownership, particularly black home ownership. Mm-hmm. And that changed dramatically you know, in the wake of the mortgage crisis, in the wake of of tens of thousands of tax foreclosures over the last 10 years, a city that had always been a majority homeowner city is now a majority renter city. And so a lot of the protections that other cities that have a, a, a longer tradition of renters, protections that those cities have put in place, Detroit hasn't put in place. Mm-hmm. So Detroit doesn't have some of those guardrails that other cities have and and residents of detroit don't have as much experience with renting because they probably grew up in a house that their parents owned so they don't you know they might not realize oh you know i gotta make sure i get a lease i gotta make sure that i um you know verify that this person is who they say they are so there's you know we haven't built the infrastructure to to support the fact that we are now a majority renter city Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Erin Einhorn. She's a national reporter with NBC News Digital. We're talking about a story published last week by NBC News and Outlier Media that exposed the dimensions of the fake landlord scam here in Detroit. People who pay lots of money in rent to someone who says they own a property, but in many cases it turns out they don't. Uh, Someone who says they want to sell you a property here in Detroit and work out the terms of that sale maybe over many years. And it turns out that they don't actually own the house in the first place to be able to sell to you. So you don't own the house even after having paid lots of money uh, to own it. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Give us a call and tell us what your reaction is to this idea that people in Detroit are being told that they either are renting legitimately or owning properties that they don't. Uh, we'd also love to hear from you if you're a victim of one of these scams. Tell us what that experience is like. Tell us what uh, you're doing for housing uh, after something like this happens. Also, give us a call and let us know if this is something that you see happening in your neighborhood quite a bit. Uh, I have to say that in the neighborhood where I was born, near Livernois and Grand River here in the city where I now operate a, a nonprofit uh, that's a literary and community arts center, um, this is a pretty common problem for our neighbors. Uh, this is something I had not really heard a whole lot before. I went back to that neighborhood and started the work that we're doing at the Tuxedo Project um, but it is something that comes up over and over and over again. There is a lot of question about who owns what properties, who has the ability to sell those properties or to rent those properties. Uh, and that makes it very difficult for our neighbors, many of whom, of course, are vulnerable, economically vulnerable, uh, to find stable decent housing. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Aaron, I want to talk a little about what the city's role is in this, what the county's role is in this, uh, and why Nothing is being done about it. Even in the wake of this story being published, the response seems to have been 
somewhat muted or delayed? Well, I think, I mean, I mean, one of the, the big conclusions that we made with this story is that, you know, the scam is extremely widespread, you know, that as many as one in 10 tenants facing evictions. And yet there are almost no prosecutions. Very, very, very few culprits are actually charged with a crime or caught doing this, which means that they can keep on doing it to more and more people. Um, but, you know, you know so, but it's not, I, I don't think it's fair to say that, oh, well, the police are just kind of, you know, shrugging their shoulders. The reality is most victims aren't telling the police. I mean, I interviewed uh, me, uh, me and, and my co-reporter, Aaron, at, at Outlier Media. We interviewed eight victims. And of the eight victims we talked to, only one had any contact with police in the wake of their scam. So the rest of them, some, I mean, some people said they were, um, they feared for their safety. You know, the scammer, they know their scammer. It was a lot of, like, people they knew from the neighborhood. They still see that person in the neighborhood. They were concerned about retaliation, so they didn't come forward. Others were just really overwhelmed. You know, I'm suddenly being tossed out to the curb with all, you know, my possessions are out on the curb, um, you know, and now i got to find new housing. And so the thought of, like, going after that guy, you know, who probably was using a fake name, who probably had fake ID, it's just kind of it's not the top priority. They're they're more urgent priorities. I got to find housing right now to put a roof over my children's heads. This is a lot of families. This is happening to. Hmm. So you know, so it, it isn't it isn't making it to police. Uh, and then when police do try to investigate, you know, they do find out. You know, this person wasn't using a real name. They had a you know, it was just a first name. It was a phone number. That phone number doesn't work anymore. Uh, so it becomes really difficult to investigate. It becomes difficult to to to, to catch these folks. Mm. Uh, and what is it that would change systemically or could change systemically in the city that would either make this harder to do by these people who are scamming uh, people about rent or or ownership, uh, but also would make it easier to to stop them from doing it repeatedly? In other words, to find a way to meet out some consequences so that this doesn't happen as often as it does. I mean, I think, you know, for starters, uh, you know, some education, I think, would be helpful in terms of making sure that tenants know to ask for ID from the person you're giving, you're turning rent money over to, you know, get a lease, uh, you know, a, a large number of people that we spoke to for the story didn't have a lease when they when they moved in. It was kind of a, you know, you, you can move in, you know, here's here's some rent money. Uh, but it was more more of an informal reaction, and they, you know, and they didn't know that they could go online or go down to the register of deeds and look up the property record to find out who really owns, you know. So they didn't have that information, and they didn't have the resources to get that information. So the question is, can the city, can the county, can the state put resources in place to make sure that tenants and home buyers have the tools that they need to to verify and vet the transactions into which they're entering. Hmm. Uh, we did hear from Attorney General Dana Nessel, though, in response to your story. Uh, she announced this week that uh, she's going to re restart giving advice about how to avoid these kind of scams. Uh, that's some action. It's not quite the the hammer, I guess, that that, that you might, that you might want uh, from officials to 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 try, to try to deal with such a widespread problem. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure that they, you know, I mean, you know, and the, the attorney general's office also didn't have any complaints about this. So, I mean, it's sort of, you know, sh you know, you know, could they could they could they go around? Could they go? start an investigation in another way. I mean, you you know, if you drive around Detroit, you've, you've seen those flyers on telephone poles mm -hmm. that say, you know, house and cash, and maybe those are legitimate sellers. Maybe they're not. Maybe somebody should ask some questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got two comments on Twitter that, Twitter that I want to include in the conversation here. Uh, Carl on Twitter says, as a Detroit real estate investor, I always use two low-cost tools, the Wayne County Register of Deeds Office and Title Insurance. Never buy a house without title insurance and never rent without checking out the landlord at the Register of Deeds office. A big neo on Twitter says the city of Detroit should put out a list of approved landlords for citizens to check to see if they are on the up and up 
uh, for renting a home. Uh, two interesting, two interesting points there, Aaron. Some of this is again about education and awareness. Well, and some of it, you know, it, you know, part of it is that there are so many vacant properties in the city, and a large number of those vacant properties are, in fact, publicly owned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're land bank houses. You know, the land bank says they're making, you know, efforts to to make contact. I think they, I think it was the twenty four hundred. I can't remember the number, but there's, you know, a couple thousand uh, occupied properties that the land bank owns. You know, can the land bank do a better job of? you know, knocking on those doors and making sure that the people living in those houses are, you know, aware of the fact that they're in a land bank house and not a house that's owned by, you know, the guy who shows up every month to collect their rent. Mm. You know, and then there's the issue, you know, a lot of properties, you know, Detroit has had so much foreclosure and so many properties have have turned over that, you know, a lot of tenants say they have no idea who they're supposed to be paying. They don't know who their landlord is. Some of the scammers in this case are actually former owners whose houses were foreclosed and they just never let on to the tenants that they're not the owner anymore. So they kept collecting the rent. Um, So, you know, what can the city do? What can the county do to make sure that people are aware of who owns their property? So if a property is foreclosed, you know, maybe some kind of notification, maybe some kind of registry, Mm. you know, maybe some kind of way that people can get the information because going online, like the, like the commenter on Twitter says, you know, you have to, First of all, you have to have a computer or a phone or an internet connection. You have to know where to go. And I've used the the online tool. You have to put in a credit card. It is not easy to use. It's not a simple thing where you can just, like, pop online and get it. It Actually, you have to pay for it. It isn't free. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Aaron Einhorn of NBC News. Great to have you here to talk about uh, this story. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with Abdul El-Sayed about a new way to measure COVID. Case counts are climbing again, but that doesn't mean, he says, that we are moving backward. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.